And this is probably the mistake that I think I made. It's just like, okay, we need 450 kilowatt and whatever turbo it is to make that. Instead, we're after realizing that too much power sometimes can work against you on the circuit, I got advised and we worked very closely with Ben from Artec and him telling me, look, trust me, let's put a smaller turbo on it. Your car's fast. We need response. So... Welcome to the HPA Tune In Podcast, I'm Andre your host and in this episode we're joined by Jimmy from Evolution Racing Spears in Sydney, Australia. Jimmy's actually no stranger to High Performance Academy as we've had the pleasure of interviewing him on a couple of occasions now, specifically at World Time Attack. While his dismantling business, which we'll get into in a moment in more detail, is well known, uh, he actually came to HPA's attention because of his, of his Mitsubishi Evo 6, which is the current World Time Attack Challenge Club Sprint Championship holder, and that is no joke. This is a very fiercely contested class with a lot of workshops and privateers competing for honours. His Evo 6, while on face value not too extreme, is an absolute masterclass in how to do everything right and get a package together that is fast in a straight line, under brakes and around the corners while also fitting in with what is a very stringent rule book. Back to his business, ERS or Evolution Racing Spears is or started out as a Mitsubishi specialist dismantling yard. However, his dream, his passion and his skill set has really taken this to the next level and as we'll hear through this interview, he's now added in mechanical services, OEM and aftermarket part sales and also managing performance builds. There's really nothing it would seem that Jimmy and his team can't do. Before we get into our interview with Jimmy, for those who are new to high performance Academy. High Performance Academy or HPA is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune engines, how to build engines, how to construct wiring harnesses. We also cover race driving, education, race car setup, data analysis and a whole lot more. All of our courses are delivered via high definition video based modules that you can take from anywhere in the world provided you've got an internet connection. You can check out a full list of our courses at hpacademy.com com forward slash courses and you can use the coupon code podcast 75 that'll get you 75 dollars off the purchase of your very first hpa course also if you like free stuff i've got a great deal for you every month high performance academy runs a giveaway we partner with suppliers from all around the world we give away everything from ecus and dashes through to engine building tools car setup tools and wiring tools you can check out our latest giveaway at hpacademy.com forward slash giveaway it's always a great deal. There's always great odds that you could actually take away that package and we'll ship it free to your door no matter whereabouts in the world you live. So absolutely no risk getting your name into the drawer. Go check that out. All right, enough of our introduction. Let's get into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast. Jimmy, thanks for joining us today. And like always, let's start by getting to know a little bit about your background. Specifically, how did you get interested in cars? Well, look, you started probably over 10 years ago now. I was a teenager. Yeah, mucking around with cars in the driveway, just me and friends and family. And, you know, always wanted to be a race car driver and build my own car. So it started when 
I think I bought my first rolling shell when I was like 15. And uh, I used to always watch my dad fix cars in the driveway. And yeah, man, so started there just from home. So most 15-year-olds are sort of saving up for their first Toyota Corolla or, or something like that, and, and you said you started with a rolling shell. That sounds like you, you jumped straight in the deep end. Give us a little bit more detail. What rolling shell are we talking about here? Well, it was more of an impulse buy at the time, and I sort of begged my dad to help me out a bit because I was an apprentice at the time. So I bought a rolling shell. I think I was 15 or 16. Um, I was on my L's. The rolling shell didn't go nowhere. It just sat there for a year. And thankfully enough, I sold it back for the same price I bought it for. But yeah, it was just more the fact that, you know, to follow the passion of building a car. I've always liked to build my own car since I was a kid, whether it was, you know, as a rolling shell or if it was a standard car, you know, all the cars I've built along the way have always been starting from scratch. Okay. You mentioned that uh, you were doing an apprenticeship at this stage. Is this in the mechanical industry? No, actually, I started as a plumber. I'd done that for a few years. It was a good passion at the time. It was good money. You know, I'd done that. I loved it. It was good working on high-rise buildings and stuff. And you know what? The plumbing background taught me heaps before I converted to the mechanical background. Yeah, man, uh, that's where it started. And yeah, on the side, just on weekends, after hours, you know, we'll work on our own cars. You know, back then, after a while, I, on my P's, I think I had an RX-7. I was into rotaries at the start when I was a teenager. I had RX-3, rolling shell, and then I had an RX-7 and and a Mazda 3, so I was all into Mazdas. And then one day, a good friend of mine, he's moved overseas now, but he's, he had an Evo, and goes, oh, come for a drive, you know? See what this your RX-7 will do against the Evo. Because that's, you, you saw know... the light. <laughs> <laughs> I got to feel the real car. So, yeah, man. Um, Instantly offside with all of our rotary followers, but uh, <laughs> no apologies there. No, <laughs> I couldn't afford at that time when I was a teenager just to own a rotary, so... Yeah, man, it was it was a good experience. You know, as you know, Sydney Sydney streets at the time, you know, it was all about who has the faster car. You say at the time, but I don't think that time has really changed. Sydney's really just gone from one extreme to another. Every time I go there, it's just wild. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people have converted now to hitting roll racing and the drags, but yeah, it's still you still see it here and there. And hear about it. Well, I want to talk about that Sydney scene in a bit more detail because I kind of see it is actually quite unique with all of the places that I've been around the world. Sydney has something special. But before we get into that, we'll, we'll go a bit further down your sort of background story. Now, you said you wanted to be a racing driver, and I guess you really can class yourself as ticking that box, at, at least at this point. And again, we'll talk about your World Time Attack endeavours as we go through our, our chat. But at, at what point did you sort of actually get yourself onto a racetrack when you were younger? So, not really much in terms of racetrack when I was younger. I was always just, you know, with friends and family. I, even, even when I was a kid, I was always, oh, you know, I want to do F1 driving, I want to be a Formula One. I want to watch, you know, I want to be a V8 supercar driver. So I was always, that was my dream. But uh, yeah, it was just friends and and uh, family, you know, on whether it was motorbikes or quad bike riding or doing crazy stuff on the street, you know, which I don't recommend. But yeah, so when I started actual circuit, I was doing drag racing for ages. That's where I thought of, sort of really started, just drag racing. I had an Evo 9 wagon that was pretty rare at the time in Australia because you couldn't import them. So we ran like a 10-second pass with that, entered heaps of events when I first started the ERS sort of venture. And then, yeah, man, and then I went from drags to deciding one day, look, you know what, I want to – I've run my 10-second pass in an Evo, 
street evo wagon family car and i want to try out circuit racing so yeah man we started from there five six years ago it sounds not too dissimilar to to my background i kind of got hooked on that drag racing bug pretty early on and it's it is a hell of a thrill, but at some point you sort of sit back and realise that you're spending more and more money on this car in order to spend less and less time in the driver's seat, and that equation kind of at some point just didn't make sense for me anymore. You kind of get more seat time in, in one lap on a racetrack than you probably do in a full season of drag racing. Obviously at very different paces and they're entirely different thrills, but yeah, that that's kind of the, the direction I went. In terms of your mechanical skill set, so, so moving on from the plumbing, I'm guessing probably not a lot of uh, skills that translate between the two, but did you actually end up doing a formal qualification in the mechanical industry as well, or is this just self-taught? Yeah, so at the start, it was sort of self-taught. I was uh, at the start transitioning from plumbing qualification to the mechanical world. And how it all started was I had an Evo. The first Evo I ever bought, someone ran in front of me and crashed the front end of it. So I couldn't find parts at the time. Brand new was very hard to get because it was an import Evo 8. And I decided to buy a whole car that was crashed on the other side. It was actually a good friend of mine. And it was just random that he he had an accident on the other side of the car and he had the same car. It was even the same color, which was pretty crazy. So I bought that car and I fixed my car with that car. I used all the parts I needed, fixed it, put it back on the road. And then I parted the rest of that car out, you know, just in the driveway at my mum's house, you know, crazy thing. But heaps of people started coming down because, again, it was very dry at that time to find Evo parts. So it became like a hobby to, uh, you know, just doing it because I like it. And I, I started to fall in love with actually, the biggest thing was falling in love with helping other people fix their cars. Hey man, I need an engine. Yeah, sweet. I got one. Hey man, I need a key box or I need a front bar. Or I need a, a seat. And the people I was meeting were like a mixture of rally drivers, circuit racers, uh, street drivers, and you know, very high end people, or very passionate people in the, in the, in the racing game. So it started to become like that. Then I, I got my ticket to do dismantling and we found the place probably about half an hour from where I was at home at the time. And yeah, when we got licensed for dismantling and me and my cousin at the time who was working for me, who was a licensed mechanic, he would do the mechanical part and I would do the dismantling. And then we just, over time, I got my ticket to uh, as a licensed mechanic. So yeah, I went from dismantler to mechanic. And then, you know, a few years ago, we, we became a, a car dealer as well. So we were able to sell cars because throughout the last 10 years, you know, I've always been buying and selling cars that, you know, my personal cars or cars that I like to buy that I find very clean or need a bit of touch-up work or whatnot. And, uh, yeah, we sell it to the to the market and it's been good since. All right, so, so this is ERS or Evolution Racing Spears and it sounds like it, it kind of just grew from this little kernel of an idea what you, which you were doing on the side to what is now a, a large and, and fully-fledged business. Yeah, so it started, like I started as Jimmy Evo. So everyone nicknamed me Jimmy Evo because you know everyone used to call me Jimmy because so, I used to only do Evos at the time. It was like, Jimmy, go see Jimmy Evo, go see Jimmy Evo. And our name got, you know, my name got spread out heaps around i even had it as a number plate which i have in my office behind me and then a couple of years after that it needed to be a brand name because it just we grew so big and you know i always had a dream to 
whatever I do, I want to do it the best. So I always said to myself, you know, when one day when Mitsubishi contacts me for parts, I know I've made it. And uh, it, it happened probably two or three years after I started you know, the venture of dismantling Evos and working on Evos and stuff like that. And yeah, Mitsubishi one day called me and they needed some parts. And along the way, big race teams, you know, whether it was the Tilton Evo or, you know, whether it was, you know, big big end rally cars and race cars. And man, I've just met so much people along the way, which I'm grateful for. And I reckon that's what motivated me the most to move from drag racing to circuit racing. Because again, most of my customers were like rally or or, or tarmac rally or race guys, you know. So I was helping heaps of guys out, you know, Bathurst race cars, last minute, I need an engine, I need a gearbox. And yeah, the passion just grew and the brand just grew from there. So a lot of the times when people sort of start a business like this, it's quite a, a big leap of faith. You know, you're sort of often coming from an existing job that you, you're doing and it's that commitment to sort of, give up that job, the safety of the paycheck that's coming in every week for what is essentially the unknown, it sounds like that just wasn't really an issue for you. You're just committed and it was happening. Yeah, look, to me, obviously, I, you know, I'm very faithful to God, you know, and I, I thank him so much because I have a lot of trust in whatever's meant to happen is going to happen, you know, no matter what, what you do. And you just have to try your best and trust the process. So for me, I actually bumped into my old boss, one of my old plumbing bosses, and he said, man, you know what? It takes a lot of courage to change what you already know and what you're already earning to something different. And he goes, man, well done. Like he actually, you know, I just seen him in a cafe and he he was um, congratulating me for, you know, where I've become. So yeah, it does take a lot of courage and, you know, faith, as you said, to do that. But I guess if you don't try, in my head, you know, what I believe in is if you don't try, you, you'll never know. I couldn't agree more. However, I would say that in general, you'd be the exception, not the norm. Most people will just stay in their place of comfort and continue to dream about uh, these ideas that they can't quite commit to testing out or pursuing. So, yeah, absolutely. Congratulations to you on taking that leap and uh, the success that you've seen. What would you say would be some of the challenges that you faced in, in the earlier days of, of ERS? The challenges were, for me, was probably the fact that I hadn't been in the automotive world professionally. I didn't start off very young in the automotive world. I started off, obviously, in the construction world, which taught me a lot. But uh, yeah, that, that was probably a bit of a challenge just because, you know, just knowing basic stuff was a bit hard for me, just general mechanical things that you would learn in a workshop, which I had to learn along the way myself. In terms of the business-wise, just being naive, you know, I, I suggest and recommend people to study sort of, you know, your field well before getting into it and your basic rules of just being trustworthy, being honest, you know, being committed and uh, very, you, if you don't have the passion, man, you won't last. That's the truth. Yeah, I, and I don't think anyone's going to go too far without being passionate about what they're doing. And I think that shines through pretty easily as well. What about the other element with starting a business? I see a lot of people in the auto industry will jump into a business because they're good at being a mechanic, for example, whatever it may be, tuning cars, building engines, it doesn't really matter. So they'll start a business based around 
that skill set that they are good at and they enjoy. And they quickly find out that, particularly when you're getting started, maybe you, you're just a one-man band to, to begin with, that you only actually can spend maybe 30%, maybe 50% of your day doing the thing that you're good at. And then there's the rest of the elements of running a business that are super easy to overlook at the outset. And I'm talking here about invoicing, estimates for customers, dealing with customers on the phone, ordering parts, freight, all of that stuff that's just noise that has to be done and takes up your time and quite often we find that we're not actually that passionate about that side of things how was your experience with that yeah look at the start for me it was i was one man and uh, obviously as i said i had one cousin of mine who helped me a lot with just the mechanical part of it but the day as you said the day it runs so it you know you've only got eight to 10 hours of work you can do, which obviously if you're starting off your business, it's not enough. You know, you got to start early. This was my biggest thing was get up early. Obviously we pray very early in the morning. So before sunrise, and then I'll just start my day from there. And um, 10, 12, 13 hour days to start off, obviously you got to put in the hours. And yeah, I was doing it all. I was doing, you know, whether it was the hands-on, whether it was the invoicing, the shipping, the quoting, all in one. I was wearing every hat and I always knew in the long run I would want a team and having a team is obviously much more efficient. But at the start, it's a bit hard. And yeah, you just got to stick by it and do it because as you said, there's a lot of talented people out there who are very talented in what they do, but struggle to be able to run a business or a company. So that on its own is probably more of a challenging job than the skill itself. Yep. I mean, the, st- the statistics of how many new businesses fail, I, I think would probably come down to a big element of this, people going in essentially with their eyes a little bit half closed, not really understanding what they're getting themselves committed to, and not understanding all of the other elements that go into to running a business. On the flip side of this, I, I do think, because I kind of went down that same path with my first business, and I think there is a benefit in being... You know, wearing all of those hats yourself to start with because you know everything that needs to be done. You've got that intimate knowledge of how all of the pieces work together and then once you start growing and maybe you're going to start outsourcing some of those tasks to more staff, you're better equipped to know what the staff member is going to need to do, how long a particular job is going to take and can start uh, developing some procedures around that. Whereas if you just hit the ground running with a, a full team of staff and no one really knows what the job entails, that's going to be a really messy way of growing. In terms of where the business is now, give us a sense of, first of all, how, how long has ERS been around? How many staff have you got at this point? What size is your facility? Yeah, so again, all of this started probably just over 10 years ago. Officially, ERS was is probably about seven or eight years old now, almost 10 years old officially. And yeah, we started very small and we've moved now to three different places. So we're in our destination now, which is in Sydney, Yonora. We've got a workshop here. This is where most of the action happens. And we've got a storage yard about three minutes away in Guildford, where a lot of the storage, you know, stays there, whether it's body shells or, you know, engines and gearboxes, things that we don't really have room here or don't need to be in the workshop. And at the moment, we're a team of eight, or nine people, eight full time, and you know I think not one or two extra contractors who come every week practically, and we've got heaps of other contractors that we get in when we need them. But yeah, man. So we, we decide you know what to do, whether it's you know full time or contract, just because it's more better for the business. Okay. 
In terms of sourcing parts and vehicles, obviously I, I don't know too much about the dismantling business, but how, how does this work? Are you importing complete cars or accident damaged cars out of Japan or are you purchasing locally crashed cars or is it a combination of all of the above? 90% of the parts or cars that we buy are local and I've always done that even you know back when I first started, there was a lot of people importing cars and half carts and containers and stuff. And look, it is cheaper and probably better to source certain things. But um, I found that we're keep it local, generate the income here in Australia, buy and sell in Australia. Like I, I am very supportive of Australian business. So I try to keep it local. There's a lot of cars here that are imports and there's a lot in the auctions and insurance. Our companies have got to know us a lot throughout the time and obviously customers, private customers who you know have come to us, know who we are, know what we do and obviously when they crash their car, they offer it to us. So yeah, that's where the dismantling started and obviously we started the Mitsubishi's and then we ventured off into a few other brands. And Okay. One question that I've sort of always had in the back of my mind with any automotive dismantler, performance or otherwise, and this sort of comes back to every year or so, you know, in a mechanical workshop, we'll have a bit of a tidy up and you sort of go through your shelves and you've got all these bits that in their own right are pretty valuable potentially but are also taking up a shitload of room and at some point you sort of got to ask yourself the hard question and do I keep this or do I throw it out and make room for some more parts and when you're dismantling cars to sell these parts and that's your, your actual key business at what point do you sort of think well I've had this on the shelf for five years now it's probably not going to sell let's move it on are those hard hard decisions to make or do you just keep everything forever yeah look this is the biggest challenge in the dismantling secondhand parts world is you have to swallow to throw things out i try to do it in a different way where yeah if i have to throw it out i'll throw it out but i'll try to give things away to like friends and other workshops and or give them like bulk deals and just say hey we're doing a big cleanup do you want to just come buy buy a batch of these gearboxes or engines and Look, it gets hard because when you're cleaning, you just want to get rid of it quick. Because I've done it so many times now, I try to do it as efficient as possible. And yeah, you just genuinely can't keep everything. But in yeah, in the dismantling world versus a mechanical workshop, because we've got both in one now and we try to split it, is you have to keep enough that you know it might sell. And if it stays, like you said, if it stays on the shelf for more than two, three years, look, it was never going to sell. So it's better to just get rid of it. Murphy's Law, I find though, that the moment you make that decision and the part goes in the trash, a week or a month later, you've got the perfect customer for that part or the perfect situation where you could have used it. But that's just how life goes, I think. All right, looking at the rest of the business, you've got the dismantling. You've mentioned the mechanical, and I'll dive into that. How long did you go solely Mitsubishi before you started branching out into the other brands? And can you give us an idea of what other brands you're supporting now? Yeah, so Mitsubishi was pretty strong when I started, you know, in the 2012, 13, up to, you know, sort of 2016, 17 before, uh, or probably 18 before the, the cars started to hike up a bit and cars were getting rarer. And yeah, so Mitsubishi's were getting were actually very popular, you know, but they were getting rarer to find locally and internationally and the prices were going a bit higher and people weren't worrying about dismantling as much anymore because the cars are worth more now so it's worth fixing them and putting them back on the road so we started to look at models like the toyota 86 brz i seen 
I was very attracted to that car because, you know, it's a good platform. It does whatever you want. You know, it's similar to, not similar to an Evo, but it's similar in terms of platform. Like you can rally it, you can track it, you can drift it, you can do whatever you want. Put a V8 in it, you can put a 2J. So it's a platform of car that very good chassis and it's got a lot of potential. So I realized, you know what, it's it's something to, to dip into. And I really like that car. It's a nice car to drive. So yeah, we tried that out. And we went really well. We started buying heaps of them because they're flooded in Australia with heaps of spares and ridden off ones. And uh, yeah, we dominated a lot in that field. And then uh, recently, probably in the last year or two, we started to look into the GR market. So anything GR related, which is Supra GR, the Yaris GR. Yaris was very popular because there's heaps of those cars here now. Yeah, soon, obviously, we can look at Corolla and other GR models. Sure. Okay. Anything else that's sort of on the horizon for you or is that enough to, to kind of keep the, the business pretty busy? Look, R35, because like I like Skyline GDRs, like, you know, 32, 33, 34 is everyone's, you know, everyone has a soft spot for it, whatnot, you know, if you're in the, in the JDM scene. But I just don't feel attached to that, to those models enough, especially with the prices now. They're pretty crazy. So I always said to myself, look, if I was to buy a GDR or get into that market, because, you know, there's a lot of them now uh, in Australia as well, the 35 would be where I want to be, you know, because it's, it ticks the boxes for someone that's a bit mature now where you can just jump in and drive it in automatic. It's semi-comfortable and it's got a lot of performance and, and technology. Yeah, definitely. So we started to get into that and yeah, we've got a GDR35 workshop car and we dismantled one R35, which was pretty interesting knowing what happened with that. The engine sold and went into a Datsun, which is very famous all over social media now. So <laughs> Okay. All right. Let's have a look into the other elements of the business. You've got the mechanical side of the business. So what specifically are you doing? Is this uh, a fully fledged performance mechanical workshop or is it uh, routine maintenance servicing etc so the performance was always there but we were we were doing it at a, such a small scale because it wasn't really our focus at the start and we were only doing our own cars and friends cars professionally the performance mechanical started and the, the shop was licensed probably professionally almost five years ago now and it was at the start it was more just builds you know just doing car builds you know you want Three four hundred kilowatt at the wheels. You want you know you want to run a nine ten second pass, and you know we ran a nine second pass in one of my customers' cars at Kudamundra, you know, and we came second outright, I think, for the event probably four five six years ago, and it was very quick at that time. And then we sort of said, you know what, most people are coming to us for diagnosing and repair work, so we we started to change the vision in the in the mechanical business more to yes, we'll still keep the builds, but we will focus and specialize more on the servicing and maintenance and repairs. I picked the right people. We've got, I think, five or six mechanics now, and the three senior mechanics that I have all have the specialty in the different fields. So I've got one mechanic who's, you know, very focused on driveline. You know, he's a licensed transmission rebuilder. And then I've got another mechanic that does all the diagnosing and stuff. So I know that most of the, the field, but I picked the right people to support that that area. In terms of those builds, just coming back to the performance side of things, and we're going to dive into this as we go through this conversation with a couple of the builds I wanted to to detail. As far as I'm aware, you're not doing in-house dyno tuning yourself or engine building. Am I, am I on the money with that? Yeah, so dyno tuning we don't do here. Uh, we can do light 
road tuning stuff, which we, we do for some of the repair cars. I don't try to sell it to customers because I don't want that on, on, on us because obviously there's no tool here to double check everything. The road's not safe enough to do that. So yeah, we outsource our tuning. We work with you know several tuners here in Sydney. I get asked a question all the time. You know, who's the best tuner? I say to them, <laughs> you probably know this. I say then there's no one best tuner. There's a tuner for a different computer, different application, you know. So we like to choose who we feel is best for that job and to give that customer the best result. Sure. Is this something that is worth pursuing to bring this in-house in the future or are you quite comfortable with the arrangement you've got? Look, business as a business owner, and and you know, I think a lot of you 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 know what you mentioned before with running a business. Some people make the wrong decisions because they want to invest and do something that they want to do, but it might not be profitable. So yes, I would love to do tuning in house, just for the fact of keeping it all in house, keeping it simple, not having to take the car anywhere. You know, the customer feels comfortable that it's all coming from the same place. Even though all our customers have been very thankful that we just take over the whole job and we outsource the tune. We don't hide anything from the customer. But yeah, for simplicity and efficiency, it would be much more better to have a dyno here. But financially, for what I would say for our type of business, investing that much money, and I don't think people know exactly how much it costs. Maybe you can can elaborate on it, but I have a rough idea that you're looking in the the high hundreds of thousands, you know, hundred and Fifty to two hundred thousand dollars Australian to get a dyno, you know, install it, running it, and then the cost of running it every year. If I invested that money somewhere else in the business, whether it's to buy parts brand new or cars, or I find that for me, it's probably more better and more efficient to do that. Even though I would love to do tuning here, and I think you're probably even light on that assessment. I would say if you want to get now a quality four-wheel drive dyno and with the, the power numbers that we're seeing these days, realistically, particularly in Australia, your only sensible option in my opinion, and I am probably biased here, would be a mainline pro hub. And you've got that. Most people look at the price of the dyno. I'm not quite sure what mainline are charging for those. Obviously, there's different specs, but let, let's call that maybe 120, 150,000 somewhere around that mark would probably be about right. And people sort of think, okay, well, that, that's it. That's my investment and I'm done. But, but it absolutely isn't. Uh, the part that's so easy to overlook is the facility to run one in. And that is probably about the same amount of money as the dyno to do it properly, particularly if you want to keep the, the sound down. And that's so important. If you've got mechanics working next door to a dyno cell, you have to make sure that the rest of the rest of the workshop is is down at a reasonable noise level, and the other element as well is the extraction uh, of the exhaust gas. You've got to look after your health as well. Plus, just to get reliable numbers, you want to get that exhaust gas out of there so you, the engine's able to breathe clean air. So it, it is very costly, and when you've got that sort of investment, let's call it maybe quarter of a million dollars Australian. You absolutely are going to need that investment working for you every day that you're open. So it, it is it is problematic. I will say though, as well, to those who are listening and maybe have a slightly more slant towards tuning, you know, at the start of my career, I was I was leasing a dyno that was around the corner from me, and um, it was workable. And ultimately, when I got started, I mean, I didn't have the financial resources to do it any other way. So it is what it is. It worked for me. 
But I, I went for about 18 months looking at the numbers of, of financing a dyno and building the dyno cell. And I sort of thought, oh, should I? Shouldn't I? No, it's too much. Oh, maybe I will. And 18 months of this back and forth and finally committed and actually did it. And literally, as soon as I had that dyno facility up and running, the expansion of my customer base and then all of the knock-on work that that brought. And I sort of looked back and thought, oh, shit, if I'd known this, I would have just pulled the pin straight away. But, you know, you've never got a crystal ball and you can only really make the best decision you can based on the, the situation that you face. Let's move on a little bit. And with the the second-hand parts that you're, you're selling, you've, you've also moved into some... OE, genuine new parts as well, and performance parts, is that correct? Yeah, so secondhand parts was the start. Brand new, genuine, and brand new aftermarket parts was the second step and second phase of the business. And then it was obviously installing those parts, secondhand or brand new. And then it went from just general mechanical to building cars on top of our cars because people seen what we can do. And then we decided to step up all the racing to actually show, look, we are very committed and passionate and we won't stop until we're winning. <laughs> so yeah, with the brand new and uh, aftermarket parts, that, that was a bit of a challenge to dip in with you know different companies and brands that would help us out and uh yeah i'm grateful that man we've got a good relationship with probably almost every brand in australia that's related to our field man we support them they support us we push a lot of the products that are reputable and i try my best to stay away from copied products it is a bit hard sometimes but and even though you look at it and you're like man there's so much profit in selling just a copied clutch or a copied manifold or a copied turbo or whatever but it's like i'm too loyal to other brand owners who actually spend the time and effort into developing that product and spending the money to make that product that i wouldn't want that i wouldn't want someone to do that to my business you know to just copy someone else copy my business that i've worked so hard for and then you know you just support them. Yeah, I wish uh, I wish there were more business owners that thought the same way because they would pretty well straight away shut down the imitation parts industry, I would say. In terms of uh, getting brand new parts for some of these older cars, I mean, every manufacturer, every OE manufacturer is, is a little bit different. What's your experience been like with, with Mitsubishi? I mean, for example, I know... You can no longer buy a brand new engine block for the likes of uh, Evo 1, 2 and 3. Obviously, they're, they're getting pretty old now. But yeah, where, where does sort of Mitsubishi tend to draw the line in terms of their support for, for their older models? Yeah, so a lot of my bigger parts that I buy through our dealer here, he still brings in you know the blocks and stuff for the later models. The earlier model stuff that's discontinued and obsolete. Yeah, look, it's a challenge. You can look around the world and chase, and you know we we have a lot of connections around the world to get rare and obsolete parts. But I see Mitsubishi, one of the brands of Japan that are not remanufacturing much. I see Nissan making remaking heritage parts, and I see think Honda and few other brands that are doing it which i hope and i wish mitsubishi does get into it eventually i reckon they'll make a lot of money but yeah it is a bit of a challenge things are becoming obsolete you know we used to get evo 9 crate motors that were awesome evo 8 crate motors i used to sell a lot of them and it was amazing to look at it you open the box you see myvec engine and you see a brand new turbo 
comes with a clutch and a throttle body and everything they're ready to drop in the car but you know those days are gone we can only hope and we we bring in all the serviceable stuff that we try to keep on the shelf to just look after our customers and and realistically the the biggest buyers we have for most of our genuine parts is other workshops a workshop needs a fuel filter or a set of spark plugs or a block or a head or you know anything to service their cars so we'll hold the stock for 90% of the shops in Sydney. Yeah, okay. Obviously, over just the conversation we've had so far, the 10 years or so you've been operating has seen quite a shift in what you've been doing business-wise. What, what do you sort of see as a vision for the future? Where's ERS going to? How, how big is it going to grow? Are you bringing in any more sort of services to offer? Are you going to different locations? Yeah, so we... Finally happy where we are now in Sydney. We are eventually at the end of this year expanding in Sydney to our next door, next door to where we are to just expand the business here. But I've always loved Melbourne and I found a lot of our customers from Melbourne loved our service and work and you know the availability of parts. So we're teaming up with OE Performance in Melbourne. So me and Omar there, we're partners in Melbourne and we'll, we'll be doing exactly what we're doing here just stepping it up with supplying the demand that is needed in Melbourne and having parts available there because of what I hear and see is a lot of parts come out of Sydney, whether it's secondhand or serviceable items and just the quality of build and experience that we get here, which I'm grateful for that Sydney is just a bit ahead with, as you know, like big power stuff and racing and you've got Sydney Motorsport Park here and Sydney Dragway and there's a lot of motivation and encouragement from Sydney. So, yeah, man, we're expanding to Melbourne. So I hope the, the people in, in Victoria get ready for us. And, yeah, it's going to be exciting, man. Exciting times. Okay. How about just in terms of the Mitsubishi platform in general? I mean, obviously, I am biased towards that Mitsubishi platform from from my own background. But you know, what what have you sort of seen? How's that changed with the the popular evolution models? And what do you kind of see is going to happen to those in the future? I mean, obviously, they're not making them anymore. We've seen the way things have gone with the Nissan R32, 33 and 34 GTRs with the prices skyrocketing on those. You know, what, what's your prediction? You know, I've always said even before the hike of Mitsubishi's, we've seen the hike of GDRs and Supras and a few other Jap cars. You know, I had a talk about, a talk about this with someone else uh, in 2019 before the hike and I said, look, Evos will just follow. They are a type of car that are super popular in every field. You know, rally guys love them, circuit guys love them, drag guys love them. So they suit so many different car enthusiasts that it's common sense and bound to hike in price because you've attracted so many enthusiasts from every field. Whereas, don't get me wrong, Skyline has that sort of thing, but it didn't, Skyline didn't really get too deep into rally, old school rally guys, you know, the guys that are 67 years old that that will spend whatever it, whatever it costs to go buy an Evo Tommy Mackinnon for 150, 200 grand today, you know? So there's different buyers in different, you know, in, in every field. But what I see is we've had a hike already with the Mitsubishis. I believe the best Mitsubishi to have in terms of collector car would obviously, all of them are good, but would obviously be the last of each chassis, which is the Evo 3, 
the Tommy Mackinnon, the Evo 9 slash 9MR, and the Final Edition Evo 10. Those ones will always be the pinnacle of their chassis of the Evos. And I believe, obviously no one knows the future except God, but I believe soon in the future they might double in price again. Yeah. Yeah, I think that kind of matches what I've seen. You know, certainly I've still got an eye out for a, a tidy Evo 3. Uh, I probably missed the opportunity of buying one of those at a reasonable price. but um, Well, the opportunity is always there with me. So <laughs> <laughs> They're still they're still going to go up in, in value, I think, because they're, they're just not making any more of them. And the old saying, the, the best time to plant a tree or buy an Evo 3 was, was probably 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And uh, the second best time probably is, uh, is right now. But it's really hard to look at the prices they are right now and sort of see value. So it's a bit scary. That unfortunately is the world we live in. On that same note, I think I kind of class myself as being lucky with the time that I grew up and got involved in the industry, particularly here in New Zealand. I went through what I think was the golden era of the New Zealand scene with what we had was foreign rotary nationals, which was a big show and shine and then drag racing the next day. And that, that was kind of how I got my start. We had a really big rivalry between three of us all racing that early Evo 1 to 3 platform and each of us pushing each other. And I'm really thankful that I grew grew up with that. These cars now are getting to that price point where young guys and girls sort of just getting their licences these days, buying a, a, an Evo 3 for here in New Zealand, what's probably about 60, 65k Kiwi dollars nowadays, that's not realistic. I'm not seeing the same options as well for the young enthusiast market that, that I had access to. You know, we had you know, rear-wheel drive, turbo, Sylvia's. There's not a lot of, of fun cars coming out brand new off the showroom floor, maybe with the exception these days of the likes of the GR Yaris and GR Corolla, arguably still not at an affordable price point. What do you see as the next generation? Where, where, where are things going? What's the cool car to have that's going to actually be fun to modify and drive? It's hard, man. It's, it's actually hard. I feel, I feel for the new generation because I look at the racing slash car hobby and uh, passion to be a good hobby to have. You know, it's, it's better than being on the street or being with the wrong people and stuff like that, which, you know, we've all, and I've experienced myself, you know, I actually, in, and motivate parents to push their kids to keep their children motivated in the cars. And these days, you know, I guess the only way to do it would be to just start with the cheaper cars, you know, like there's still the cheaper cars around. Like I remember my younger brother, you know, when he started off on his L's and P's, you know, we went and he bought a Corolla Sportivo and he went and bought a, you know, Pulsar Triple S. And then he, he moved to the Lancer. He always wanted the Evo. He moved to the Lancer GSR and 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 that's how sort of I reckon most younger guys can start off with under ten grand, pick a cool car and just work your way up and you know, don't blow all your money on it, but just start somewhere and eventually get to the right car that you think is better. And I've always looked into if the money's there, spend the money on a newer car rather than try to make a really old car fast because you're just changing so much. Whereas you do it smart and you move that car on and say, okay, I'm going to spend this money to, to buy something a bit newer that I'll modify. It's 100% smarter because, as you know, the engines are stronger or the technology is better or, you know, it's just being used less in general. So that's probably the only advice I can say. Yeah, I think I agree with you. 
I will say on the flip side of this, depending how deep you want to go down the rabbit hole, there's a lot to be learned and skills to be built on if you want to go down the path of actually looking at building a car, kind of from what you said at the start, a, a rolling shell. And I kind of went down this with one of my own projects. Uh, I had a KB60 Starlet, which I swapped in a 4AGE turbo and supercharged engine. And that was a project I worked on for a couple of years. And like a lot of projects, it kind of ran out of steam and, and never actually saw the light of day, which is unfortunate. But a little further on with that, I ended up with a KE70DX Corolla and uh, bought that with a factory 2T engine in it and then swapped in a turbo 20-valve engine. We ended up running that down the drag strip and it went 10.5s and was a hell of a lot of fun. It was my daily driver for a number of years. But that car was, first of all, cheap to buy and the skills that I learned doing that build and that engine swap in it, and then you know, obviously like everything, it had a number of iterations of build. Those skills were absolutely priceless and really put me on the path to, I guess, I've got to today. So you know, I think that's two very separate ways. I mean, obviously not everyone wants to get their hands that dirty. And, uh, you know, obviously it's it's not a, a build that's going to be done in five minutes, which you can maybe do with some, some basic bolt-ons. But I just wanted to, to bring that up anyway. Let's talk a little bit more about the Sydney street scene. Because as I say, I mean, I, I've kind of been to a lot of places in the world and, and Sydney to me is just quite unique. I see a couple of elements with it. I just want to basically put this to you and see see whether you sort of agree or disagree. First of all, I know that there is a, a lot of really high quality workshops based in Sydney that are putting out some incredible work. We see a lot of them focused around that Nissan R32, 33, 34 GTR platform, uh, but obviously not not solely limited to that. I think that breeds competition because one workshop wants to outdo the next. Usually healthy competition too, I think. And then the other element that kind of feeds into this that I see is that facility, which is world-class Sydney Motorsport Park, where you've got Eastern Creek, the actual race track, and then you've got that used for roll racing, which I think runs most Friday nights from what I understand. Yeah, every second Friday, I think, yeah. Yeah. And then you've got the the Sydney drag strip as well, which is literally across the road from uh, the motorsport park as well. Is that what has sort of brought in this feeding frenzy of the the stereotypical uh, Sydney street car, which now has fifteen hundred wheel horsepower? <laughs> yeah, you got to you got to start at a thousand plus to enter these days, but or to be competitive, I should say. Yeah, man. Look, to be honest, I, I encourage the Sydney street guys that you know want to race on the street to to race at roll racing or race their friends there and stuff i'm grateful to be in sydney to be able to hang around and be around all the other workshop owners that i used to look up to and now we're we're on the same level i could comfortably say as those guys with car builds and the passion and and the enthusiasm as they have and uh yeah roll racing has amplified that and and as you said, drag race, uh, Sydney Dragway is right there. So yeah, I, I can't see. I've been to almost every state in New South in Australia, except Tasmania, and uh, and I find look, we are probably the pinnacle of you know when it comes to big horsepower drag slash roll racing cars, and and it's it's good encouragement to anyone that's watching and following. And um, as you said, with the workshop wars, as much as they might probably take it too serious sometimes between themselves. I think it's very healthy for all those shops to have that competition 
whether they're competing for the right reason or not, it's still you see how exciting it is for everyone to chase it and follow it, man. It's, it's been good. It's been good to watch. I just take it back to, to my own experience with, with my Evo when we were developing that. And as I said, in that area, in that time, there were three of us kind of each pushing for the record. And it would literally be one weekend, I'd go faster and set a new PB. And then a week or two later, Zoheb would, would go faster or Brett Lesang. And, and it was just like continuous. But I guarantee that if there weren't the three of us pushing each other and setting these these fastest times, you know, there's not a lot of incentive to really go faster if there's no competition. So I think competition really is important. Uh, roll racing is something that uh, I think has become increasingly more popular uh, maybe over the last five or so years. I mean, it, it just didn't exist back when I was drag racing. makes a lot of sense because it takes at least that shock loading out of the drivetrain that you get with drag racing, which is where the majority of the failures happen. Obviously, that's not to say that you're not going to break anything roll racing. But what's the requirements here to turn up to Sydney Motorsport Park on a Friday night for roll racing and, and take your car and, and do some runs? Like, What do you actually have to do? Obviously, the car has to be safe in my opinion. That's just my opinion. But make sure the car is safe. Um, in terms of the event rules, they're pretty cruisy, man. Like They're doing well for themselves. And uh, I'm not going to comment on the background politics behind what, what should and shouldn't happen. But my opinion is they've made it very easy. For people to take their car registered, you know, it has to be on a road radial road tire. You're not allowed to run on slicks, and it practically has to be a street car, whether it's super fast or not. And yeah, you just turn up and start racing. There's not too much in the background to have required because, you know, as you said, you're not launching, and you're not having to worry about stopping because it's not going for a long period of time like a dragway and practically going uphill so you're not worried about you're not worried about parachutes having to come off and 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 whatnot so yeah it's, it's been cruisy which is good because then it doesn't turn people away that you know oh, i'll rather just do it on the street then so I'm, I'm very supportive of it because it gets people off the street well that, that was where i was going with that because i mean like i guess most young guys who are into cars there's an active illegal street scene here in New Zealand when I grew up and I was involved with that and I got through it unscathed and you know I'll be honest it was a lot of fun I didn't see anything too dangerous go down but I know what can happen but I think all that being said anything we can do to encourage people to take that off the street and do it under a controlled condition no pedestrians walking out in front of you, no oncoming cars, no curbs. These are all the things that make roll racing under controlled conditions you know, a, a no-brainer. And I think the, the one bit for me that I find a little tricky to to get my head around is you know, where, where they stand on roll cage rules. I know when I was younger and I didn't have the money for a roll cage and I just wanted to go racing, it seems stupid to require a cage for every event. Now that I'm older and I've seen what can happen, I think, you know, a roll cage is probably pretty smart, but, you know, as it is, the roll race rules in, in Sydney don't require a, a roll cage, and, you know, if you're abiding by those rules, you're off the street, you're probably at least in the safest place to be doing it, I think. That's the balance that I, when I talk about it, and I, and I hear this in the background, oh, you know, it should be scrutineered and it should be this. Well, yeah, it probably should be, but you've got the other side where how many people are you going to turn away when you do that, and then those guys, they're going to just 
do it somewhere else, like you just said. You know, we've all been in the streets racing and doing crazy stuff, and it's a big difference when you've got speed involved. And you know, if you want to go do a burnout or something, that's that's not as bad when when you're doing you know 150 mile per hour, and you know you're you're down on the back streets in a cul-de-sac or something. You know, things can happen, like you said, cars can pop out and. It can be very dangerous. I've witnessed and experienced and seen because I've dismantled thousands of cars now. I think I've dismantled two or three cars where someone has died in it, and it wasn't easy to do that. You know, so like, no, nah, that can't be pleasant. I wasn't. It wasn't even intentional. We didn't realize till the car would come to our shop and be like, "Oh, someone died in this car," you know, and then we would just genuinely chuck it out the same day like strip whatever we can off it and just throw it out because you just don't want it in front of your face you know so it's not easy man i've i've lost a few friends in terms of the wrong thing on the street and uh that's why for me i knew what i was attracted to which is adrenaline and i loved racing so i said you know what move that passion and fun to the track and you know what you'll learn to love it more anyway because once you experience how much fun you can have on the track whether it be roll racing or circuit racing you won't want to do it on the street as much. You won't, the crave won't be there. Absolutely. I yeah. could not agree more. Yeah. I just wanted to take a moment out of our interview with Jimmy and talk about a package deal that we've put together that I think you're really going to like, and that is our track day package. Perfect for those of you who are intending to take your car to the racetrack for the first time, maybe even for the 10th time, maybe even competing in club level motorsport. Regardless, this will be perfect. The package starts with our Race Driving Fundamentals course, which as its name would imply, teaches you the fundamentals of driving your car fast and safely on a racetrack. No big surprise here, the techniques of race driving are very, very different to what we use on the road daily driving. This course goes deep into all of those techniques and we rely heavily here on input from an actual professional race driver. Moving on we're also including our motorsport wheel alignment course and again no real big surprise here that the alignment settings of our car have a really big impact on its handling, its balance and its performance on the racetrack and again these settings are always going to be dramatically different to what would be optimal for a road car. Most people will rely on a wheel alignment specialist to perform their wheel alignment but this is problematic because it means you can't make easy adjustments if you get to the track and it starts raining. We'll teach you how to use simple and cost effective tools at the track to make your alignment changes. We're also including our practical corner waiting course and while this is something that's usually overlooked at the introduction or grassroots level you will not see a professional race car in the pits that is not being corner weighted. This has a big impact on the handling balance of the car and if we want to get the best out of the car this is a very important step. Moving on, we're also including our data analysis fundamentals which will teach you how to use basic data analysis or data logging tools to help analyse both your own performance as a driver as well as your car's performance. This package deal is usually valued at $397. You can use the coupon code ERS100 and that will get you $100 off the track day package. Now, even with that discount, you can still take up our 60-day no questions asked money back guarantee so if you purchase them for any reason at all decide it's not quite what you expected no problem let us know we will give you a full refund of the purchase price we'll put the coupon code and a link to that package in the show notes to make it super easy for you to find let's get back to our interview now 
All right, let's move on, Jimmy. And I wanted to dive into uh, some of your builds in a little bit more detail. And um, probably the one that you're best known for, and we've already actually covered this in some detail on our YouTube channel. So maybe we can chuck a link in the show notes so people can actually follow up and get some uh, images of this rather than just us chatting about it. But this is your Evo 6 track car that you're the current club sport champion for world time attack challenge if i'm correct yeah club sprint we've got the club yeah club sprint record for two years now we've we've come first we've got the fastest record of time now we beat the record uh last year or maybe the year before no i think it was last year we got a 133 at eastern creek and that's in our class where we have to run a standard road tire uh that was on the uh yokohama AO52 attire. Yeah, man, it was it was fun. It was good. And we've been so committed to try to have that. So it finally paid off. Well, let's talk a little bit about that build. I mean, obviously, it was going to be a, a Mitsubishi Evo that you were going to base the build on. You know, no rocket science there. But when you've got the choice of all of those Mitsubishi Evo models, why was it the six that you went with? So there was a few reasons. There wasn't one particular reason, but there was a few reasons. I love all the Evos, so there's no one model that I favor the most. I love all of them, but I picked the six because it was the smartest decision for me in terms of the weight, and I wanted to also be a bit different with... There was a lot of Evo 7 to 9 models racing at the time in Time Attack, and I was just like, you know what? I want to stand out a bit. I don't want to go pick a car that stands out, but it's heavy. I wanted to pick a car that stands out that is light. So for me, it was like, okay, if I make it light, if I pick a light car, I'm going to miss out on all the technology and a lot of the stuff that comes better in the later models, you know, whether whether it's active center diff or whether it's ABS or whether it's any sort of technology help control that we can benefit from on the track wasn't really there in that model. So I had to be smart with, okay, I've learned, what it's like driving the Evo 5 and 6. I'm going to, and I know what it's like to drive the Evo 9 and 10. So I'm going to pick the best out of those models and implement it into this one and uh, amplify whatever else we can benefit from in the technology part of it. So on that basis, the Evo 1 to 3 generation that was out because of what you've just said, that sort of lack of technology. Look, to be honest, Evo 1 to 3, in my opinion, if I was to say, can you build another Evo in my class to beat my car, I would say, yes, an Evo 1 to 3 is still a good platform to be in because, again, it's lighter. The drama is in our why I didn't choose that car, that chassis was the fact that we're not allowed to have tubular subframes and we're not allowed to have different engine swap. So from my understanding, you can't have – because if I was to pick the Evo 1 to 3 chassis – I would 100% want to run like an Evo 9 driveline through it. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, the big problem, as I see it, with the early generation is the, the drivetrain is problematic, particularly around the gearbox. They they just do not have the strength of the later model, no matter what you do. it just It's not going to be as reliable. The other thing with the earlier ones, I don't think you're going to easily fit a decent width tyre under the body and I think there's restrictions in club sprint as to what you can do with the bodywork, isn't there? Yeah, so look, probably I think you can get away with that in club sprint. You can put flares and stuff and you can you can get away with it. It was just more 
it would have been a bit too far complicated to try to make it work. We could make it work, but it was just too complicated. You know, you're stretching the rules a lot. You're just spending so much more money on making custom things fit. And I felt separate to that, again, because there were so many different reasons. I'm not focusing on selling parts and trying to upgrade Evo one, two, three cars. So it was like, should I dwell into that even though I think it's a better chassis because it's lighter, but it's going to cost me more. It's not going to fit my customer base well i can't help my customers out that are in that model anyway because it's hard to get parts and hard to build those cars so focus on what's most popular here in sydney or in australia or around the world which is the evo 4 to 9 chassis because it's targeting so many different models and the evo 10 is just the big brother of that model anyway so it's not like the evo 10's out of the picture it just means you're choosing a bit of a heavier car, even though I have raced an Evo 10 and I believe it's probably one of the best track cars as well to have. But as you know, man, it's hard to get weight out, especially when you're doing this sort of racing where it's time attack and weight does play a big role. Yeah, unfortunately, weight is the enemy. And you know, you've seen with just about every brand of car, generation after generation, they simply get bigger and they get heavier and all of the required safety structures and, and bits and pieces just add to that weight and it's just difficult to, to get rid of. Alright, so on that basis, you've chosen the Evo 6 platform, what's the sort of, I guess, biggest strengths and weaknesses as you saw them in terms of what you knew you could keep and really sort of dive into and what really was going to need a lot of work? Because I'm an, I'm personally an RS enthusiast, I wanted to pick an RS. So I wanted to pick an RS because I felt like it was a little bit of a step ahead in terms of weight. I picked the Evo 6 RS. I found the bog stock standard one that was just a road car in Melbourne. And then we just man stripped it practically down to a bare shell. And I always said when I build the Evo 6 platform, I want to show the world and our customers that we can implement certain things from the later models into that chassis that's going to allow you to go faster because you've got better traction, better suspension geometry and, you know, braking and all of that sort of field because power, a lot of people try to just add power, add power, and then they forget about all that part of it of, you know, what's your brakes doing? What's your diffs doing? What's your traction like in terms of, you know, your suspension arms and how, how wide your track on your car? So all of these things were very important to try to adapt to this chassis after we learnt the other chassis. And then I was just pick up on it. And, you know, I'm grateful that I knew so many race teams that would just give me a bit of advice. And I would look from different models and different people and just pick up on these things. And yeah, man, it worked out in the end. And we decided, you know, the way I wanted the car built is how it came out in the end. And the start of it, when we first released the car, I think it was 2018, it wasn't what I wanted. I was sort of talked into a few things by different shops and fabricators and stuff. I'll try this and do this and put a big intercooler and big throttle body and put a big turbo and, you know, try this suspension and try this diff and do this. And it's just like this clutch. And, and, and it's good that I tried it because, again, I can help my customers to decide what's best for their application. But I sort of built a drag car at the start on the circuit. And it didn't work. And it was just very wild and it was just unpractical. I think we caught fire that first outing in 2018 with our track car. We caught fire from a turbo gasket blue and damaged the um, oil feed line on the turbo. 
we wasted that weekend that time attack that time and the car was rushed and it was just like, you know what, I'm going to follow my instinct. I'm going to follow what I know. We changed their whole car that year, the next year. And man, we came out in 2019 and it was it still wasn't the best, but we won and that was the most important thing. I think the path that you've just explained is, is so common though. And some of it, sure, it sounds like you probably were given some bad advice and and maybe went in some directions, as you say, against what your gut instinct was telling you. But there's also an element of you getting started with this, you don't have experience with it necessarily, so you don't even know what you don't know. You kind of have to go to the track with a setup, find out what works, find out what doesn't, and then assess the direction to to move in. It's very difficult to start with a clean sheet of paper, particularly, again, if you haven't built a competitive road race car before and uh, genuinely come up with something that just works straight out of the garage for the first lap. It'd be very rare that that does happen. So, yeah, I think your experience is probably pretty typical. Let's dive into some of the specifics. So let, let's get started with the engine. I mean, the 4G63 in general is a, a pretty robust engine until you really want to start making serious power, but you know, the, there's a variety of different combinations of capacity, 63, 64 blocks. You know, what, what did you end up going with in that particular vehicle? Yeah, so we were, we were on the um, fence of like, oh, should we put a 64 block in it? Because, you know, taller deck and, you know, stuff like that. And should we put a 63? I was always a bit of a, again, back to loyalty of, you know, the brand and the, the engineering in the background from Mitsubishi. I was like, you know what? They picked the 4G63. They dominated in that block. So I'll just stick to that. It's no necessary to, it's not necessary in my field to, to go to the 64 block. So we stuck with that. So 4G63 block, and I wanted to run a Myvec, even though I knew it would probably do a similar job without it in my field in club sprint. But again, it was more to prove to everyone that, look, it's possible, it's beneficial, and we wanted the data out of it, and you will see gains out of the Myvec on the circuit. And for those who maybe aren't up to speed with Mitsubishi Lingo, Myvec is essentially the Evo 9 cylinder head which used a continuously variable cam control system on the inlet inlet cam only. So yeah, just, just to get that in there for those who aren't maybe picking up what you're putting down there. Definitely, yeah. So it was 100% we see gains in the, in the Myvec variable cam. We see response and you know different uh, torque in, in the RPM which which helps. Um, especially mid-corner, that helps a lot. And yeah, man, we, we stuck with the 4G. I decided for a circuit car, I really like the Japanese stroker kits. I find them, they're good for the power that we're sort of chasing. And we decided to go with a HKS 2.3 Step 2 stroker kit in our engine. It wasn't and still isn't a very popular stroker kit here in Sydney or Australia compared to the others. But I really liked it after I had a, a car that I bought with a HK Stroker kit and driving it just felt different to every other engine. It's a 96 mil crank. So they have their own millimeter crank compared to, you know, 94 mils 2.2 and 100 mils 2.3 or 2.4. They have their own millimeter crank. They have their own size pistons and rods, uh, which are very light and the crank's nice and heavy and forged and it's super balanced and I've done a lot of research and, you know, the HKS Time Attack car ran that spec engine. I fell in love with it, man. I, I fell in love with it after I drove that car. It was an Evo 8 with that engine. And I said, man, 
it just revs different. So we tried it out and we wanted to try it in our car because our car is like our R&D and development car. I don't want to take the risk on customer cars. And, man, we fell in love with it and it's been in there since. Okay. Yeah, it's it's one I haven't had any personal experience with, but I think I've kind of gravitated towards the 94mm the stroke aftermarket cranks, which take you out to 2.2 as you just mentioned the factory 4G64 crank which has always been a popular option because it's easily accessible for building stroker engines. I've built a number of engines, I've tuned a number of engines with that crank and the lack of, well, the engine's inability or lack of desire to rev, for want of a better term I just, I've, I've never really never really been in love with it. Sure you're going to get good bottom end torque but for hill climb rally, uh, that that probably makes a lot of sense. But for for circuit racing, yeah, I, I think the the revability of the the shorter stroke cranks is, is probably at least my personal pick. Obviously, everyone's got their their own uh, preference. That that would be the way I'd go. But um, yeah, sounds like sort of HKS might have got a, a sweet spot somewhere in between there. Anyway, I didn't understand why they chose ninety six mil. I I feel it could be. And this is just an assumption. I shouldn't. I shouldn't uh, say. But uh, it could be because they want to be different, or maybe they found that sweet spot. Because I've driven, you know, as you know, I've driven a lot of hundred mil crank Evos, where you know they're two point three or two point four, and they just have amazing torque. And I felt like, yeah, I agree. It doesn't rev enough. But I found that you know what, for circuit racing, if you can change the ratio in your drive line to not have to ref so much then you're just going to pick up a lot of time in the mid corner so if you can bring the torques down and yeah i'm only going to shift that seven and a half or eight thousand rpm i have to watch my in-car again but i i'm pretty sure most of my in-car videos will show that i don't really rev over seven and a half thousand or eight thousand rpm so i'm not chasing top speed but it's like, okay, if I can find a reliable stroker kit in between 94 mil and 100 mil, which HKS was there, and I learned that after looking into it, I was like, okay, we'll try this out. Even though I would still prefer a 100 mil crank just to get that extra torque on the throttle out of the corner, yeah, man, I recommend most people to just try to chase that through the drive line, final drive, to, to make up for that, to not having to rev as much. Okay. In terms of the engine, really, it sort of all comes down to the entire package and obviously a big part of that is the turbo selection and this can really make or break the entire package. It kind of comes back to what you are saying earlier and I know you've gone through some experiments with downsizing the turbocharger and actually making less power but making the entire car lap Sydney Motorsport Park significantly quicker which kind of on face value seems counterintuitive but again just getting everything to work together not necessarily chasing a big power number for the dyno glory but actually just getting it to all work. Where have you ended up with the turbocharger sizing? So before we were trying to work out what's the best turbo we just put whatever we thought was the right turbo for that power and this is probably the mistake that I think I made and a few other of the people helping me out made as well. It's just like, okay, we need 450 kilowatt and whatever turbo it is to make that. Instead, where after realizing that too much power sometimes can work against you on the circuit, I got advised and we worked very closely with Ben from Artec on developing the new turbo kits. So the V-band cast stainless manifolds and you know, having them reverse rotation so they suit standard design and, and, and him telling me, look, just trust me, let's put a smaller turbo on it. Your car's fast. 
we need response. And I keep telling him I want more response. So we decided for World Time Attack after trying so many different turbos, all the G-Series, we're doing all the R&D on the G-Series turbos with the Artec Turbo manifolds that we sell through our workshop. We decided with the G3770. At the time, we thought maybe it's a bit too small. It wouldn't make the power we want, but we took the risk. And just before Time Attack, I actually tried a G35, but we had a bit of a, a fault with that just before. So we put our G30 back on and we said, look, we're not going to take the risk and we'll just go for it. And you know what? It worked in my favor. I'm a big believer and everything happens for a reason. So it was meant to be on there. We went out, man, and I was very surprised, even though the car didn't feel top speed power. I felt like we were still lacking top speed power. We just had so much speed through the corners and uh, it worked in our favor, man. I think that, that response element is something that is really easy to overlook. And, and I would urge people to Google the Artec manifolds because they're quite unique. We actually did a feature with Ben at GTR Fest that will end up on our YouTube channel at some point. But it's got quite a, a different development path or direction with his manifolds compared to most. And I mean, physically, you look at them and they are visually tiny. And you sort of look at it, you go, well, that just, there's no way that's not going to work. It can't make the power. The runners are too small. But the reality is, as, as Ben was discussing with us, you know, most of these manifolds are using runners that are just way, way overkill for what they need to be. And, and it just hurts that response. So it's all about getting everything to work in harmony with your engine, the exhaust manifold, as well as the turbo sizing. Uh, so where did you end up with that G3770 power-wise and sort of what was, just importantly, what was your your usable uh, rev range? Sort of where were you actually seeing peak boost? Yeah, so we get Benny to tune the car and we, we got he got it up to, I think, 380 kilowatt on the highest boost setting that we would run with on the night. We didn't run that boost because we said we'll leave it for the shootout. So the time attack morning, we ran on our second last boost setting, which was about 350 or 360 kilowatt. And what sort of boost does it need to, to produce that? From memory, it was, I think, between 30 to 31 PSI of boost to get that power on our engine. And look, Benny from Benchmark doesn't lean on it too much in terms of the tuning, from my understanding, because obviously it's circuit car, it's not roll racing drag car, different type of engine combo. We want it to be reliable as well. And this is another thing that I focus on is, Ben, you know, we want to do a lot of laps, so I'm not chasing too much power. And uh, yes, it is time attacking. All it takes is one lap. But to get that one lap, you want to be able to do a lot of laps in practice and on the day to try to achieve that. So yeah, we, we got our fastest time on about 350 to 360 kilowatt. And the car had more in it. We're still trying out a few different turbos since then to try to come up with extra power and not lose too much response. With the G3770, we've seen boost starts very early, especially with the Artec turbo kit that we, we sell here as well. And Ben's done an awesome job to keep that response. We start seeing boost at like, I think, 2,000 RPM. It starts to spool, you know, one, two PSI. And full boost is probably between 36 to 100 to 3,800, you know, at peak boost probably 4,000 RPM, depending which rehousing we choose as well, because we had two different rehousing sizes. We had AR, I think, 0.61 and 0.8 as well, 0.83 or 0.82 from memory. Uh, 
so yeah, depending which rehousing size, you know, what's the exhaust setup, you know, obviously that changes. But between thirty six to thirty eight hundred was pretty on. That that's an excellent response for for that size turbo. Yeah, we even started to feel a bit of surge because of you know how responsive it was, and you know we wanted to try to eliminate that. But Benny tuned around that, so which helped us a lot. And yeah, man, the car performed really, really well. Okay. Another key change that most people make when they go circuit racing is to the lubrication system because obviously you, you're seeing sustained high G-forces under cornering and braking that you just don't see on the road and the factory sump was never made for that. The sort of go-to is, is normally just to reach for the top shelf with a dry sump system which works exceptionally well but comes with a, a fairly steep price tag. So what, what did you sort of go with on this application? We were tossing and turning between should we dry sump the car, should we not. At the start of racing our car, we had a um, race fab sump which we sell here as well. They're, they're from New Zealand. Rob helped us out with the sump and we had an AccuSump to support the car for cornering for certain G's and then recently we swapped that out for a uh, Infinite Evo sum. He's also from New Zealand. He's um, We do a lot of good stuff in New Zealand, I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> New Zealand and the Aussies, mate, they're, they're doing well for the world. Someone's got someone's to do it. Yeah. So yeah, he's helped us out with the sum. He works very closely with Benchmark as well and uh, we've done a bit of testing recently and we found a lot of gains there before we decide to convert the car to dry sump. So for now, we don't want to go the dry sump way. I feel like it will complicate the car too much, and I'm a big believer on keeping it simple to suit our application. I think it's easy to overlook that not only the significant cost of a dry sump system, but as you mentioned, complexity. There's a lot of plumbing that goes into that, but the other part is there's a lot of weight that goes along with a dry sump system compared to a wet sump as well. Now, I deal with Mike from Infinite Evo a a little bit, and I have had a a couple of chats off and on. I haven't seen the product uh, in my own hands, but I think from what I understand, it's an external uh, oil pressure regulator as part of that system as well. Do you you know much about that, or are we sort of beyond your knowledge of the system? No, we know everything on the car. Um, We study it pretty well before I pull the trigger, because it is important at a car that's our level. We don't want to just throw anything on there that might, affect the car so yeah it's got an external regulator which is good because you can change different oil grades to suit your engine you know if you want to try to run a thinner oil you regulate the oil differently run a thicker oil regulate differently and he's got his own design in the sump different to others uh, which helps with surge yeah with the regulators something that he's designed man it's been really good my chats with him, uh, sort of the whole design impetus of that product was around the fact that the factory oil pump is essentially overdriven or pumping more oil than it should. So it's essentially, I guess, almost pumping the, the sump dry and that external regulator kind of was was one of the solutions for that. And then obviously there's a conventional or somewhat conventional baffle box inside the sump as well to, to keep all the oil in one place. All right, moving on, uh, another real weakness when you start winding the power up in an Evo is the factory drivetrain. So what have you done there? So racing the car this year might be a bit different, but in terms of what we already had was a, uh, we use Exceedy and ATS clutch. That's all we, we try to push and sell through the workshop because, man, they just work and they're good for all around, you know, circuit, street, drags. We run at the moment an ATS carbon hybrid clutch 
and our second clutch is an Exceedy twin. In terms of gearbox, we run a Albans H-Pattern dog box. It's a Group N gear set. So we've got the Group N ratios in the car, which I like. And then I work closely with Albans on customizing the right final drives to suit our power and the track because that's one thing that I've seen was a problem. Am I right in saying that the club sprint rules dictate that you have to stay H-pattern? Is that correct or am I dreaming there? Yeah, so the the previous rules up to this year were you had to be H-pattern unless your car was a factory sequential or a auto. So we, we had no choice but to go with the dog box and it worked for us and it was good and you know, we, we tried a few different brands and we stuck with Albans as the brand that was the most efficient and they're made in Australia as well. So I like to support local. This year, we'll be changing that setup to a paddle shift sequential gearbox in our car. Now, with the H-Pattern, let's talk about how it was back last year when you when you won. One of the benefits with uh, a dog engagement gearbox is the fact that you can use something like a, an ignition cut to interrupt the engine torque and allow really, really quick changes of gear without actually needing to back off the throttle, so clutchless shifting. Uh, normally we see that in terms of a sequential gearbox with a strain gauge gear lever. That strain gauge sends a signal to the ECU requesting the shift. Now that, that's still absolutely possible with uh, an H-pattern, it gets a little bit trickier to tell the ECU you're requesting a downshift so it can auto-blip versus an upshift so it can do an ignition cut. Were you doing anything tricky like that with the H-pattern or were you still using a, a lift or a clutch to, to shift? Look, I'm pretty good with the clutchless shifting because I used to do it a lot in drags with the dog boxes. So I could do that with our car not having to worry about the ignition cut like strain gauge. I did try, we did have a go to put a strain gauge on our car and for some reason, you know, it wouldn't work consistently. It was uh, falling out. So we found that, you know, it was just safer to turn it off. And again, it goes back to keeping the car reliable. That wouldn't be the case if the car's sequential. Obviously, it's up and down. You don't have to worry. So yeah, we, we turned it off and, you know, I still use clutch on the ups and down shifts when I feel like, it's safer, especially if I'm shifting through a corner or if I'm, I'm going really quick, I'll just lift the clutch a bit. In terms of all the straight sections, I'll just clutchless shift, just lift off the throttle a bit, pop it in gear and, and uh, obviously rev match going down the gear. So yeah, driving it, it is a bit of a roller coaster to drive with that dog box, but it was good, man. It was reliable and it was fun. Yeah, nice. Oh, it'll be interesting to see how you adapt to the, the paddle shifting this year when when that's all up and running yeah we can't wait uh, another element that i had covered in our little youtube video but I'd be interested to talk about this here as well as the shift from to the bosch motorsport abs system which you ran last year so previous with it being an rs i assume no abs uh, originally yeah so no abs rs you can option abs uh, my car wasn't optioned with abs so we we found that it was allowed in the rules to adapt ABS because the car came out with ABS initially, that model. And yeah, we, we always found it a bit tricky to drive the car without ABS, having to be very careful what pad, like brake pads we choose, you know, what size brakes, what's the back brakes doing, are they locking up? We had an issue the year before locking up the rear wheels too much. So, you know, it was always a bit of a challenge having the motorsport ABS 
implemented and I would never go back. It's it's such a good tool to have. It's such good technology to have in your car and it just it amplifies everything to do with your brakes. You have to learn to drive with it, in my opinion, to make the most of it because, you know, if you're just going to drive it as you do normal, it's not going to work at its best. So, yeah, we got we had to get used to that. So, what what is the, the driving technique that you're employing with the ABS? How does that differ from how you were driving with the factory ABS? Realistically, the best way to explain it is just brake really hard late. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, oh, easy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just brake hard late, later than you usually would, and the car, you know, pulls up heaps better. Trail braking helps a lot. It does that helps a lot. And just you're a bit more connected with the tire as well uh, when it comes to under brakes. You can feel more what the tire is doing rather than when you don't have ABS, you're just locking the tire. So you don't know, if is it the surface of the road? Is it the tires wearing out? Is there something else going on? Is there oil on your tire? So for me, it's I'm a big believer in brakes is the most important you know on the track because if you sorry if you're confident with braking and you know where your car pulls up you're 100% going to go faster because then you're more confident on the accelerator that's one thing I implemented and I found you know a lot of gains on that end we're about halfway through a, a Bosch Motorsport ABS uh, installation in our Toyota 86 endurance car and um, we're, we're working through this with Bosch Motorsport in Australia and we will actually be uh, doing some YouTube videos about it uh, in detail because I haven't found anything where there's a really good a direct comparison between a, a factory ABS unit and then what the Bosch will give you. I know everyone obviously raves about the Bosch Motorsport ABS, but it's hard to sort of, cool, well, what's that give me? You know, What's it going to reduce my braking distance by? How is it going to affect my uh, longitudinal G-force under brakes? You know, what's it going to do to my lap time ultimately? Because that's what we care about. So that's what we wanted to create a video so we could actually give that evidence. Yeah. Well, to be honest, the, the, the biggest thing for me on that is I got one of the dealers here, the Bosch Motorsport dealer, nine, not Ash from 909 Motorsport. He's the main guy here that, that does a lot of the installs for, for Bosch Motorsport. They, they work together. Yeah, he's always about, man, you're saving your tire lifespan, especially if it's endurance on your end. And yeah, man, you should probably have a chat with him. He's helped us out a lot. He knows it really well. He works closely with the big teams in racing and time attack. I think the Porsche time attack outright winner, the 968, he works with them. He's been helping us heaps in the background and it's been very beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I did actually an interview with Ash at uh, GTR Fest as well. Uh, so yeah, had a good chat to him. I think one of the, the elements, as I understand it, I mean, I haven't haven't driven the system yet, but mistake a lot of people make is, you know, with driving either without ABS, where obviously you're, you're trying to stay right on that threshold of, of just preventing that lockup, or on a conventional factory ABS system where you might sort of just be on the brink of that ABS modulation starting, and if you apply that same driving style to the Bosch Motorsport ABS, you're actually not providing enough pressure, because the system can obviously reduce the pressure to eliminate a lockup, but then it needs a reserve of additional pressure there so it can reintroduce the pressure and, and slow the wheel again. So you know, basically how I got told to drive it in the big braking zones is treat the brake pedal like a switch, push it as hard and as fast as you can, and the harder and faster you press that brake pedal, the better the system's going to be able to work. Now, there might be a, a slight oversimplification, but you know what I'm getting at here is quite a different driving style to get 
used to compared to a conventional braking system and that sounds like you're sort of backing that up as well yeah definitely man all right um now in terms of the rest of the drivetrain as well you mentioned uh acd previously active center differential uh there's also ayc or active your control in uh, some of the evo models you know are you using, well, first of all, what are those technologies and are you utilizing uh, either of those in your car? Yeah, so starting off, obviously, in the parts world, I used to sell a lot of ACD transfer cases and then people would ask for non-ACD transfer cases and can you sell me an AYC diff and can you sell me an RS diff? And it's like, okay, we started to learn why are people doing this at the early days and and then I started to look more into it and speaking to a lot of amazing guys who helped design this system. I think one of one of the, the, the designers of this system was uh, an Australian guy back in the 90s when they had Rally Art here, which was Bob Riley in the Rally Art days. And he used to always talk about active center diff and active yaw control and stuff. So we, we looked more into it. I realized after racing the later model Evos with active center diff, and active yaw control that it does help you in some places on the circuit probably not a lot on the on the gravel but in my opinion a lot on the circuit yeah man it was it was um, something that i wanted to do on our car from an early time the active yaw control has its weaknesses in terms of the casing so it's a bit hard to work with that Uh, so we decided to put the traditional mechanical lsd just an rs diff as they call it and with the front, because the Evo 4 to 6 model doesn't come with ACD, it comes with the viscous setup, we found that it was a bit, un it's not as reliable and unpredictable. Sometimes you'll get a bit more lockup, sometimes not enough lockup, and it just, different corners felt too unpredictable. So I decided when we're building an Evo 6, it was like, look, I need to have ACD in, ACD in there and at minimum, and uh will be the one of the first in our field to convert to that because it's not an easy task, especially when you've got rules like standard subframes and you can't change subframes and you can't change, you know, engine combos or, you know, just the rules that we have in Time Attack. So it was a bit challenging at the start, but we did do it and we found it wasn't as good at the start because we didn't know how to work with it in terms of the tuning background. And we got in touch with a good friend of mine who I work with a lot as well is, is uh, Nick from NA Autosport in Queensland. He's got his own files made for the MoTeC ECU to control the active sedative. We implemented those changes in there and he helped us out. And, and uh, since then, man, the car's been an animal. So in essence, just to break that down, the active center differential is essentially you can control the torque split between the front and rear axle lines and that torque split can be controlled, my memory serves correct, through that MoTeC diff controller based on braking or throttle position and I think also, if my memory is correct, it takes lateral acceleration into account as well. Does that sound about right? Yeah, so it depends which computer is controlling it. I think factory ACD module looks at a few different things, like it looks at steering angle, brake pressure, maybe clutch, you know, depending, I'm not sure, but brake pressure, acceleration, steering, G sensors. So you've got, you know, lateral Gs and, you know, vertical, whatever those sensors are, left to right, front to back. Uh, they usually sit in the middle of the car. Yeah, that all work together and... I think if you go to a MoTeC diff controller, it uses less of those things, where in our case, 
I didn't want to rely on a factory or a Motec diff controller. When we built our car, I made sure when we wired it up, installed all the, the modules, we would want to try to keep it all run through the Motec ECU. But we had to get a file made to obviously control it. So NA Autosport has the file and the background made to the firmware is, is what they call it to control the active sensitive. So this is on a Motec M1 platform so that they're now integrating not just engine control but also the ACD control all within the same same unit but just using custom firmware as you mentioned. That's correct, yeah. And, and obviously the ECU is its own G-sensor as well. And we've got all the other sensors that we've implemented in the car to be able to handle that. Okay. So I'm guessing here that getting this this tuned properly, the ACD tuned properly, is, is going to influence the handling balance, whether the car tends to push or understeer or whether it's going to oversteer? Yeah, so obviously if the ACD is not working correctly because it relies on a hydraulic pump in the back of the car or wherever you put it, but factories in the back, and that's where we've put it. Um, it relies on that pump to put pressure on the clutches in the ACD to lock up and put the power, like divert the power from front to back. Because if the pump's not working and there's not enough pressure in an Evo, it's opposite to like a GDR or other cars that are rear wheel biased, we're front wheel biased. So if your pump's not working, which I've driven many times in our racing field where my pump motor will die or just stop working because they are a bit fragile sometimes and then the car will become more of a front wheel drive so i try to explain this to many customers is evos are always all wheel drive but the torque split if the car wants to break traction it's most likely going to break traction in the front before the rear because the pump has to work to lock that up and in reality in the circuit world in an evo it's still a little bit more beneficial, in my opinion, to be a bit more front-wheel drive, even though us race drivers don't like that. You know, we all want a bit of power slides and, and rear-wheel drive feel. We just like it, but I've went really fast with practically more power to the front than actually more to the rear. So, All right. Let's just get a quick uh, rundown. You kind of already mentioned a couple of things in terms of maybe turbo sizing and the switch to, to paddle shift, but for this year's World Time Attack Challenge, uh, anything else that you've got up your sleeve that you're going to be changing? Um, we've got we've got special, not special, but it's something new here, which is um, we've got ATS carbon hybrid LSDs running in our car now, front and rear, which are 1.5 way front and 1.8 way rear, which is something not... Not many people run these, a lot a lot more in Japan. Uh, we're trying out some new shock absorbers, which are going to be, we're dealing with DNA Autosport, Andre. Uh, you, I think you've, you've met him as well. He's putting some shocks in the car that he wants to develop and test and see how it works compared to what we've already got in there. Yeah, just more data, more seat time. And uh, probably one advantage that we got at the moment that might work in our favor is we're trying to turn up the power. We've just converted to a, we're still running the Artec Turbo ERS Turbo kit that we, we supply. We're, we're just trying out a, a precision turbo this time to just make that extra power and see how it works with our response and yeah, how we can balance that out. So hopefully a little bit more top end without actually killing the bottom end. Yeah, yeah. So it's we obviously because we're going to have a paddle shift six speed in it now. We've got different ratios to help the response. 
and we can put up with more top end because you know the aero on the car does slow it down dramatically and it does help in the corner but on the on the straights it's it's not enough so we're, we're going to give that a go all right jimmy let's move towards uh wrapping this thing up and we've got the same three questions we ask all of our guests the first of those is uh what's next in the future for you and ers i guess we've covered some of that but is there anything else that you want to add in there Look, the, probably the next big thing, and that's probably, in my opinion, one of the best Evos in the world right now is Evo King, you know, the one that you've seen at GDR Festival. Um, that car is next level. It's going to have some results soon, hopefully, on the drag strip and at roll racing. It's finally had its first debut in at roll racing uh, about a month ago, and we've got it on a mild boost at the moment, making 900 horsepower, but that, that car's a Man, it's just a, it's all in one show car, street car, you know, drag car, all in one. I can absolutely attest to the quality of that car. We haven't really had time to chat about it here on this podcast episode, but we did shoot an interview with you at GTR Fest uh, a few weeks back. And uh, that'll be coming out on our YouTube channel in hopefully the not too distant future. So people will be able to keep an eye out for that. But we might need to have a catch up again on the podcast once that's actually hit the drag strip in anger and, and talk about the results. It's definitely it is a, a credit to everyone who's been involved with it. It's hard to really put words to just just the the build level of that car. Definitely, man. We um, we've implemented a lot of our knowledge and experience and technology, and you know we've teamed up with you know the best of the best workshops here in Sydney. And I like to do that with my own cars and other customers' cars because you know we try to focus on being the the best for what we can provide to the customer. And if it means that we have to work with the best people in that field, whether it's suspension or tuning or whatnot, I think it's smarter and more efficient for the workshop and best for the customer as well. So, yeah, man, I think for everyone listening to keep an eye on Evoking, that's a that's a big car. In terms of the future for myself and ERS is uh, for now, our vision is growing the workshop in uh, Melbourne, winning Time Attack this year and expanding our workshop which will be towards the end of the year as well here in Sydney. Oh, so just a few small aims then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Reach just, for the sky. Mate, we can't stop. So nice. Just got to keep going. All right, next question. Is there any advice you'd give to a younger version of yourself to help reach where you are today in your career faster or perhaps maybe avoid some pitfalls that you've seen along the way? Look, I know a lot of people probably hear this a lot from other people but have a lot of faith um, have a lot of faith in yourself, you know, have have a goal that you want to try to achieve. You know, like myself, when I was younger, I wanted to, when I said to myself, you know, when Mitsubishi buys parts off me, I feel like I've made it. You know, that was one thing I told myself. And then, and those visions and goals will change along the way. When you achieve that one, get a different one. You know, where do you want to be? And my advice to my younger self is, yeah, if I, I wish I just was more a bit more patient with seeking knowledge from the right people, not trusting the wrong people because everyone might think that they know it all but I now only try to adapt advice or implement advice from people who have proof and evidence that they've succeeded in that field because it's sometimes you find young guys or myself you know we take advice of our friend on how to build our car or how to, who's the tuner or 
you know, what should you do in business and, oh, you shouldn't do this and you should tell this customer this and do this. But that guy hasn't even, doesn't even have the experience and the evidence of achieving that. So that's one biggest thing I can, uh, one of the biggest things that I can uh, advise. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously taking advice from someone who's who's gone down a similar path or achieved what you're trying to achieve makes a lot of sense. I think the goal setting that you mentioned as well is, is really important. That's something that I don't, don't think has really come up too much on this podcast so far, but I think if you haven't got goals, you're kind of a little bit lost. So setting really specific goals and also breaking those goals down into to smaller goals. I mean, it's all very well having a five-year sort of long-term goal, but sometimes that's so far off in the distance, you need to actually break that down into, all right, well, what am I going to achieve this year? What am I going to achieve this month? What am I going to achieve in the next six months? And then being able to tick those off is really, really satisfying. And you know, it's amazing how quickly you start building up some momentum towards that that big goal. So I can't, I can't say enough good things about smart, sensible goal setting. Our last question for today, Jimmy, if people want to follow you, see what you're up to, buy some Mitsubishi parts, how, how are they best to do so? Where do they find you? I like to be, uh, I shouldn't say old school, but give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give us a call. That's probably the best way. I have an awesome team here that, that you know, are always doing the best that they can, in my opinion. And, you know, there's a lot of training that happens here from myself and, and others. They'll be able to assist you. Social media, as everyone knows. And, you know, you can follow us on YouTube or, or Instagram, Facebook. But, yeah, man, the most efficient way is just give us a call. So call, don't just slide into your DMs. Yeah, that's it. Because we get flooded with messages and we get flooded with emails. And, yeah, we've got all the access to any, any way that you want to contact us. But um, I try to always tell the people that follow the fastest way and the most best way would most likely be give us a call. It's the most original way, I should say. Yeah, old school. Cool. Well, we'll put links to your social media accounts as well as your phone number in uh, in the show notes to make it easy for people to track you down. Look, Jimmy, it's uh, it's been a pleasure as always. Do appreciate your time. Really interesting backstory there. No doubt we'll catch up yet again when we head over to World Time Attack in another couple of months' time. And uh, we wish you all the best with the Time Attack car. And I look forward to seeing how the Evo drag car goes as well. Thank you very much, man. Thanks a lot for the support. And I thank everyone that supports us as well. So, yeah, thanks for having us. If you enjoyed this episode of Tune In with Jimmy from ERS, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt free of charge anywhere in the world. This is also a great place to ask any questions you might have too and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week, a big shout out to Gozek the King from the United States, who has said, best podcast period for petrol heads. If you're an automotive enthusiast and want to learn from educated people at the top of their field, this is the podcast for you. Despite covering very advanced topics as well as the basics, they always take the time to slow down and explain things so that even beginners like me can understand them. I deeply cherish this podcast and big props to everyone who puts it on. Cheers. Well, thanks for the kind words there and it's great to hear that you're getting so much value out of the podcast. If you get in touch with your t-shirt size and shipping details, we'll get a fresh tea shipped straight out to you.
All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.